song you sing to God, no matter how much you praise Him, He's worthy of it all. The more, the more than we can give Him, right? Yeah. Well, let me pray here before we listen to God's Word. Father, we thank You for all that You've done for us. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for your your plan throughout the ages. And Lord, we look forward to what is coming up in your kingdom. Please help us now to understand you more and uh, be able to just know you better. We pray in Jesus' name. This good? <laughs> you know, I was thinking about the church, Church of Christ, which began close to 2,000 years ago with an attendance of about 120 people who were all meeting in one room, hiding from the people who had just a few weeks earlier savagely and sadistically murdered their leader, Jesus Christ. And now these same people were trying to snuff out the followers of Christ, the one that they had worked so hard, so long in their minds to put to death and finally were successful about it. Now thinking in human terms or just using common logic, you know, just as you look out and, <clears throat> and see things happen humanly, you probably wouldn't give this small band of Jesus followers any chance of survival or any chance of a movement starting. On the other hand, you'd probably give the Jewish authorities a much greater chance of just squashing the movement. You know, 120 people and this, this man that hardly anybody knew, well, they knew him well after that. So... I'm sure that they had a lot of confidence that they would be able to handle this situation because they were able to take the, the leader and kill him. So then how in the world did this church of Jesus Christ manage to survive what looked like just a small and weak band of people that had that kind of a beginning and yet today has become a worldwide unimaginable work of God. Isn't that amazing? Everything stacked against the church. One thing we had was God, right? Well, I would like to start today with a look into the New Testament book of Acts. We're going to see how it begins to take shape, the church, and how it survived all the attacks unleashed upon it. Now, the New Testament book of Acts, I know most of you know, was written by a dedicated follower of Jesus named Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. He was a medical doctor and proves to be a very strong researcher and historian. And as we go through this writing in the book of Acts, we will gain insight into the ways God works to build his church. 
And the thing about it is, is his ways are often not our ways. And in our day, this has become extra important to learn about, more about God's ways because so many people are looking out and seeing that they don't like the way things are happening and they want God to do something that he hasn't said he would do. And they're turning away from Christianity, blaming God for not doing this thing or, not, or for allowing this thing that shouldn't be being allowed in their estimate. But here, as we go into the book of Acts, we will gain more insight into the workings of God. So <clears throat> I'd like you to look with me, first of all, at Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5. This is Luke saying, in my former book, Theophilus, this was a, a friend of Luke's, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And then he goes back a little bit in time. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father promised. For the gift my fa father promised, which you have heard me speak about. <clears throat> for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Luke says there that after Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus appeared to them over that time period, those 40 days, and gave them many convincing proofs that he had indeed resurrected to life, that he wasn't a ghost, but that he was a real person who had come back to life. And throughout that 40-day period, he spoke to his disciples, it says, about the kingdom of God. Why the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? You know, the most basic meaning of the kingdom of God, and there, it is nuanced, it's the realm over which God reigns as king. And that just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Now, you might wonder, well, doesn't God reign as king over everything, over all creation? Doesn't he own and reign over everything he created? Well, that's true. And that's the way it was meant to be and the way it should be. But the Bible also teaches that Satan has usurped authority that does not belong to him. And he is the enemy of God. And God has allowed him to do what he's doing up to the point that he has allowed. And it tells us that our struggle, our battle as Christians, as humans, is against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So God has allowed Satan a certain amount or measure of freedom for the time being. So in this present age, we have the kingdom of God in direct opposition to the kingdom of darkness. 
And we have the values of the kingdom of God, such as truth, righteousness, peace, forgiveness, love, just to name a few, versus the values of the kingdom of darkness, such as hatred, selfishness, lying, greed, lawlessness. Now, when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the Beatitudes, blessed are those, and you've heard it say, but I say, and so on. In that time, he was actually presenting himself as the king. And he was laying out the values of his kingdom. And Israel had gone way beyond, you know, way away from that teaching. And they, the, the religious leaders had come up with their own teachings. And so Jesus was kind of telling them what it really was like to be in the kingdom of God. But here's the best part. The kingdom of God also has a literal, physical, future aspect, an eternal kingdom. And so a lot of times in the Bible when it talks about the kingdom of God, it's talking about this kingdom that God is going to bring to the, earth, to the new earth. And that will be when Jesus Christ returns to the earth in power and glory and destroys the kingdom of darkness and sends those who are in that kingdom of darkness to their eternal dwelling that they themselves have chosen. Everybody makes their own choice. And then he will bring in the eternal kingdom of God on the new earth within the newly created universe or heavens. So Jesus appears to his disciples over a period of 40 days giving them many convincing proofs of his bodily resurrection. Yeah, this is me, and I'm human, and I've resurrected, and then talking to them about the kingdom of God. Then Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem until they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they're not to strike out on their own. They're not to set their own time schedule. They are not to go in their own strength. They are to wait for the gift the Father has promised, Jesus says. And in chapter 2, we will see the gift of the Father, which he promised, when it is given to the disciples. Now, what I pick up from the Gospels is that Jesus seems to give out only so much information. And this is important, too, because we talk about, you know, people being disappointed with God and the way he does things. Or thinking he doesn't exist because he's not doing them in the way they think. But when Jesus gives his disciples information or directions, he only gives out so much. And of course, you know, we want to know more. We, we want to know, well, what happens after that? And how do we do this? But the disciples, they have no choice. They just have to trust Jesus with the amount that he's giving them. And just follow through and do what he tells them to do. It's kind of tough, but it's just, you know, we have to exercise faith in that. He tells them not to leave, but to wait there. He says, in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Do they even have any idea what that means? Probably not. 
I mean, baptized with the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? I mean, who knows? There again, they have to trust him, don't they? And so they just have to wait until something happens that he says is going to happen that they don't know what it is at all. And so now look at verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, when they hear about the Holy Spirit coming, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, you see, he had been talking to them over those 40 days about the kingdom of God, hasn't he? And they're thinking, okay, he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. Is this the time he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And even in the Old Testament, there are times about the pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. Now, from our vantage point, we know that this is not going to be the time that Christ brings the kingdom to Israel, right? We know he's going to form the church. But what does Jesus say? Does he say, no, this isn't the time. He says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. You know, he had been talking to them over the 40-day period about the kingdom. We know from our vantage point that this is not going to be the time. But instead of saying, just saying, no, uh, this isn't the time, he says it's not for them to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In verse 8, but you will, re here's what they do need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus only gives out so much information, doesn't he? He clearly does not want them to know the time the Father has planned to restore the kingdom to Israel. And that's when Christ will return. And apparently, he also doesn't want us to know the time God will restore the kingdom to Israel. The time of Christ's return. Now, why wouldn't God want these early disciples or us later disciples to know the time of Christ's return? Well, <clears throat> we have to trust him for this, but I believe the best answer is that, well, the best answer I can come up with is that God wants us to always be ready, to live ready, always be ready for his return. And, you know, Jesus tells stories about people being ready. He talks about, you know, a landowner leaving chores for his workers, and then he goes off, and some are lazy, and they don't do the work, and then when he comes back, they don't know when he's coming back, but when he does, they pay for it if they haven't been working. So he tells stories about that. I'm sure it wouldn't be good for our faith to know when Christ is going to come back. You know, just knowing the weakness of human nature, so many of us would just keep putting things off, wouldn't we? Like that high school writing assignment that you got three weeks to do, and it's the night before it's due, and you're sweating because you're just getting started. You're trying to figure out a topic right then. 
God wants us to live ready. He wants us to live as if his return is imminent. And when you read the New Testament epistles, you can see the writers are writing as if Christ's return is very soon. They write as if Christ is coming back within their lifetime almost. And that's what God wanted them to do. He wanted them to think it could be today, tomorrow, whatever. And so they write like that. And they try to keep us, you know, looking for it, ready for it, preparing ourselves for it. But what they need to know now, the, the apostles, the disciples, but you will receive, you know, you don't need to know the date, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They just need to know what they are responsible to do. And so, it isn't necessary for us to know the time of Christ's return. And in fact, it's better that we don't know. But what Jesus wants them to know is that when the Spirit comes, when the Father's gift is given to the church, they will become witnesses to their home city, well, the place they were at that time, Jerusalem, the larger area, Judea, maybe like a county, place where Jerusalem is situated, Samaria, an area north of Jerusalem, where uh, and it's inhabited by people that don't get along with the Jews, that kind of hate the Jews, Jews consider their enemies. He wants them to witness to them and to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. That's what he wants them to focus on. Not to get all caught up in times and dates of the future kingdom of God. Although the coming kingdom is very, very important, and they are told to pray for its coming. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So we are to yearn for it. We are to pray for it. We are to allow it to lift our spirits and encourage us. And I think in my Christian life, we haven't heard enough of the coming kingdom. This glorious kingdom of righteousness that will descend upon the new earth with a whole you know, fresh earth and fresh universe. So yes, desire it. Long for it. Talk about it to others. You know, Jesus talked about the kingdom to them. But in our age, our assignment is to be his witnesses. So now in verses 9 through 11, Jesus leaves his faithful followers to return to his father. It says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So they watched Jesus Go up to heaven. Go back to his father. See if you can think about that scene in your mind. 
You know, Jesus is rising from the earth into the sky. They're standing there. He's given them only so much information, and they really didn't understand what all that meant. And I'm guessing as Jesus rose, I'm just, in my mind, it just seems like it's a slow rising. And the disciples are just kind of like watching him, and they're just fixated on him. He's returning to the Father. Now, do you think as they were watching that they felt real confident that they were ready to go out and take on that assignment of reaching the ends of the earth? (laughs) I wouldn't have been. Or do you think they probably felt more like, oh, my, now what? You know, one clue may be the angels asking them why they just keep standing there staring into the sky. I, I really can't imagine being left there to take on the ministry of Jesus, the one that he's given them. I think I'd be staring there as long as they'd let me. But then the angels tell them he'll return. So we have that great confidence, don't we? But we really don't know what all that means that when they're standing there staring at him. They've been given this great big assignment to reach the world. And they say the Holy Spirit's coming and Jesus will return. It's kind of like, okay, what does that mean? You know, I think of Jesus as he's training his disciples. Well, first of all, you know, the angels say he will return. So that is, that is confidence there, but they don't know when. But I think of Jesus when he's training his disciples, and the picture I get is that he doesn't do this, maybe something we're more used to, he doesn't do this detailed step-by-step, okay, do it again, do it again, this time do it right, do it again, hold your hand this way, smile like this, be sure to use a firm handshake, it seems Jesus more so let them just be with him. And they let them witness his actions, his words, listen to his words. Then they would go off and he would teach them truths from the scriptures and how it related. And then he would ask them questions. And they would talk about the Father. He would do what the Father sent him to do And let the disciples see and be involved. You know, Jesus' way doesn't always fit nicely into our lifestyles. You know, we're so ruled by the clock or deadlines. We're always trying to put things, this is somewhat just cultural, but we're always trying to put things into three simple steps. We turn things into a simple meme. But, he, but when you think about it, Jesus taught them a whole different way. And they went out stumbling. But wow, look at the results. I mean, the church is spread all throughout the world. And praise is going up to God from all peoples. Some things to think about. But you know, now as the disciples see Jesus return to his home... They head back to Jerusalem, 
And in Jerusalem, they really bathe themselves in prayer. I mean, just praying and praying. That kind of assignment will get you praying, won't it? The seriousness of their assignment, feeling the need, the, the desperate need for God's help. It's a good place for us to be, isn't it? But I'm going to read here our last verses, kind of a big chunk, what they have to do now. And this will be informative to us also. 12 through 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city, which is about a little over half a mile. Whoops. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That's interesting, isn't it? I'm not sure if it means all of his brothers. We know that James, his brother James, became like one of the strongest leaders of the church. Uh, the Apostle Paul called him a pillar of the church. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received, this is kind of a, an editorial addition from Luke. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama or Akadama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up for, from us. For one of these must become a witness with us, of his resurrection. <clears throat> so they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen. <clears throat> chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. Oops, there it goes. <clears throat> so we have the 11 disciples, the women that followed Jesus, Mary, his mother, his mother, and his brothers. And it seems that Jesus' family has come to believe in him. Uh, it's, it's 
well agreed upon that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, has probably passed at this point. And we've said that Jesus' brother, James, became a key member of the early church. And then they turned to the task of replacing Judas, who had betrayed the Lord. You know, some commentators have tried to make a case for Judas somehow making it to heaven. <clears throat> and they'll say, well, you don't know what he thought in his last second. But, boy, with, with the language and just the flow of the passage, uh, I don't see it. Judas, you know, he, he gave up eternal to get 30 miserable coins. And you know, if we allow ourselves to be caught up in pursuits that move us away from Christ, they can turn out bad for us. You know, the, the world is so attractive, the, the trinkets of the world is, are so attractive, and they, they really, you know, reach us in, in different ways. But we don't want to give up eternal for trinkets. So they replaced Judas, and they cast lots, and pray for God's special help. The lot fell to Matthias. He becomes the 12th apostle in place of Judas. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, the 12 apostles will sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So people wonder why they have to replace Judas and have to have 12, but that's basically it. It was essential that they choose someone to take Judas's place. And then again, I think of what Judas chose to give up for all eternity in order to try to gain some worldly rewards. And he is the embodiment of the saddest exchange or choice anyone could ever make. But we see people making that choice in our day. I mean, growing up in Christian homes, knowing the gospel, following the Lord for years, and then trading eternal glory and riches and complete fulfillment in the presence of God for 30 pieces of silver. And you know, like I said earlier, people walk away from Christ because they can't understand why he does things the way he does. Or they may even decide that he, God doesn't exist because they're not seeing things go the way they think they should. Or they see bad things happening and they say, if God were real, if he existed, he'd stop that. Horrible things in our world, we see them. We see God's servants being treated horribly. And so they're saying he does, either he doesn't care, he doesn't exist, or he's, he's weak. But in my opinion, they aren't considering the whole picture. And Jesus didn't give the disciples the whole picture. And he doesn't give us the whole picture because it's, it, it's called faith. God created this unbelievable universe, and he knows how to run things. I'm not going to say he doesn't know what he's doing or that he hasn't got the perfect plan. But we know that he sacrificed his precious son for our redemption. 
our eternal happiness, joy. That's all we need to know, really, in my opinion. We cannot understand so many things, but we know that he gave his son, and that's recorded in history, and everyone has heard about it. So it's not for us to know the dates and the times. It's not for you to know the date, the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word gives us so much information. So much information that we can rely upon. And it even tells us that we're not going to know everything. So, Lord, we, we know it is a life of faith, walking in faith, taking one step at a time. Help us to have that faith, Lord, that you want us to have. Help us to rejoice in what we know. And help us to trust you for the things we don't know. And help us to encourage one another as we do here so that we can all continue on the pathway. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.